0: Hello, welcome to Feed, Play, Love, the bite-sized podcast for parents. I'm Siobhan Hunt. This is a show all about parenting. I speak to experts and carers about everything from fussy eating, toddler behavior, sleep, and more. John Marsden is an author and educator who spent most of his adult life engaged with young minds. Teenagers around the world love his Tomorrow series. He sold over two and a half million books in Australia in 2006, he founded his own school, Candlebark, from kindergarten or prep, depending where you are in Australia, to year eight in Victoria. And later, he set up a high school called Alice Miller. He's a stepfather to six boys. After many decades of teaching through childhood to adolescence, John has come to some conclusions about this transition. His latest book is called The Art of Growing Up. Hi, John. How are you? G'day, Siobhan. What did you see happening around you with the children in your schools that made you want to write this book?
1: Well, we could spend the whole time just answering that one question, but I'll try and be succinct. One thing was the lack of first-hand experiences, that their lives seemed to be so closely supervised and regulated that they consisted of nothing more than going to the local playground, going to the kindergarten or childcare centre and then to school, going to the shopping mall, and the idea of being adventurous and having a foundation for your adult life of stories that you had yourself experienced was lost in almost one generation as quickly as that. And another thing was just the uh, growth in anxiety and panic attacks, which seems to have happened so quickly that I'd say 10 to 20 years has been the time span during which this has gone from quite a, uh, what's the word, not insignificant aspect of the lives of the children who had those attacks, but it wasn't common in schools. Now it's um, absolutely just a daily problem with uh, significant numbers of young people. And I'm talking about people aged up to 16, 18. It's not just in primary schools.
0: You say that parents matter the most. That's the start of your book. And that Those that parent badly are creating a lasting negative legacy for everyone else. I think you've probably touched on it there, but what are parents getting so wrong?
1: I think a lot of it's driven by fear, that there's uh, tremendous anxiety and fear among parents that their children will be physically hurt or damaged in some way. And so we're terribly reluctant to have them climb trees or roll down hills or go into the bush without... uh, of you know a first aid officer accompanying them and uh, lots of precautions like that there's also i suspect in a i'll get controversial here i think the judeo-christian muslim uh, or islamic uh, faiths are very much concerned with judgments and those judgments are often very harsh and so the whole western society and other cultures around the world as well seem to have become very judgmental and very harsh and uh, quite extreme in some areas and also that that kind of gets absorbed by innumerable people including our own parents and grandparents so i think one of the fears parents have is that somewhere behind them is the invisible or visible mother or father, tapping them on the shoulder and saying, don't speak to your child like that, don't do that, don't give them that food, don't take them to that movie. And there's this terror of doing the wrong thing, which will traumatise the child, which paradoxically leads people to do the wrong thing and cause some real problems for
0: children. And so interesting you say that because that's totally me. Not necessarily thinking that my parents are there saying, don't do this or don't do that, just the fear that I'm going to mess up my child, Mm. which is probably reasonably inv- inevitable at some point, isn't Well, it?
1: it's like the Donald Winnicott notion of the good enough mother or good enough parent or good enough teacher. That's all you have to be because children, as I've said in the book, are infinitely forgiving as long as they know that the foundations are good. If they know that you care about them and you love them, then you can be bad-tempered, you can make mistakes, you can do unfair things or, or make silly statements and uh, they'll get over it. But If you don't lay the foundations, if the foundations are such that the child is not, is insecure about their place in the world and their place in the family, then any hurt will be perceived as something very deep and very painful and possibly uh, very long-lasting.
0: In the debate over whether nature or nurture determines who we are, it seems from my reading of the book that you fall heavily on the side of nurture that parents are responsible for when a child behaves badly or when an adult grows up to do evil things. Is that a fair assessment of what you're saying in the book?
1: Well, uh, yeah, I don't take a position on the nature-nurture thing because I don't care very much. I mean, we inherit what we inherit, and there's nothing we can do about that, presumably, unless surgeons have found some extraordinary new technique. But um, (laughs) we can manage the nurture side of life, and we can carry out our responsibilities in that area in a way which is going to benefit the child and so that's all I focus on. So yeah there are certainly elements of personality we seem to inherit and those studies of identical twins who were separated at birth bear that out but that's all beyond our control and so we need to concentrate on the things we can control which are the the ways we speak to our children and live with them, experience them and interact with them.
0: Is part of that for you about boundaries then and knowing when boundaries are too close or too far away? Because you talk a lot, um, and I know the schools that you are the principal of, are about letting children experience risk and play and be out in nature. But you also talk about um, when parents are too permissive with their children or perhaps they're too controlling. How do you find the balance there as to what is right for your child?
1: I think, uh, and I'll try and put this as delicately as I can, the more balanced you are yourself, the easier that will be. But if you are a person who has difficulties with your own emotional well-being, then it is more difficult for you to parent effectively and uh, in a way which will benefit the child. So that self-knowledge and self-awareness and the willingness and ability to confront ourselves honestly is an incredibly hard thing to do, but is fundamental to successful parenting. So yeah, we all have um, negative aspects to ourselves, and I wouldn't even call them negative, they're just part of being human. So we all are greedy at times, we're dishonest at times, we're lazy at times, we're mean at times. And that's all fine, because that is part of being human. But to make sure that those things aren't taking over, that they're not out of control, that you don't go to extremes when you're angry or or mean, or selfish, or greedy, and uh, to get some perspective is a major thing. And that can be a painful process, and it can be a very long process. So people who are in that position have to have the willingness to undertake that kind of self-scrutiny, and to look into that mirror with the aid of an effective uh, therapist, or whoever, whatever medium you choose to use... But if you can do that, then the prospects are good. If you can't do it, then there's a strong likelihood that you'll repeat patterns from the past, probably from your own childhood, which will not be in the child's best interests.
0: Something I think a lot of parents struggle with today is when it comes to helping their child grow up, where parenting leaves off and education steps in, Mm. um, I would Imagine there's a lot of teachers today more nervous about parental interference in the classroom than they would have been when I was a child. What role does education play in the way a child can be raised?
1: That's a topic which needs to be discussed more because it's happened in a kind of de facto way that schools have become like community health centres where just in the space of a decade or two, It's now just assumed that we will take care of all kinds of emotional and social aspects of a child's life. And so it's now just taken for granted that there'll be a whole large army of therapists working in the school full-time, psychologists, OTs, etc. And uh, that's fine if that's, you know, that can be a very good thing. But I would like to see it discussed more and planned better so that there is some real thought given to it because if we're going to teach about cyberbullying and drug education and sex education and relationships and all the other powerful topics that we're now expected to deal with then we also have to consider what comes out of the timetable to make room for all that so do we get rid of literacy and numeracy because there's no space for them anymore there's a bit of a feeling that that's almost the way it's going So, yeah, there is that. And I think there's so many factors in all this. I think there's such a growth of individualisation so that parents will now come to a school uh, very quickly in many cases and very readily to argue that their child's situation should be given more attention. And that's often done without much concern for the great mass of students in the school, so without concern for the group. There's a real focus on one child or two children who a family might have at a school. And I think that's partly because the extended family has broken down in many of the subcultures in Australia, so that now you have typically a suburban home with one or two parents and one or two children, and not much beyond that. People don't, often they don't know the names of their neighbours or or they don't see the grandparents or uncles, aunts, cousins, except, you know, occasionally once or twice a year or every other month. And also the uh, smaller family units so that there are only one or two children typically in a family now where there might have been six, eight, 12. I remember talking to a bloke in Tasmania who had 18 children. Wow. And uh, when I said to him, that's a lot, he said, yeah, well, a bloke next door had 17 and I was determined to keep going until I beat him. (laughs) And I didn't ask about (laughs) the wives' opinions on all that, but uh, I sort of staggered out of that discussion feeling a little... (laughs) weak at the knees. But um but yeah, the the smaller the family then the more focused there's likely to be on each individual within it, which is fine, but there has to be perspective brought to bear so that the child doesn't become the prince or princess, the the person who gets their own wish all the time. I do find it really alarming when parents say things to me, as they often do, like um, my child has never heard the word no and they give a little chuckle as they tell me that, and I think, okay, well, we're going to have to manage this child's behaviour because there are going to be problems. And that's uh, borne out frequently by the behaviour of those children when they're in a group. They don't function well in groups. And parents who say that their child has never spent a night away from them in their lives, so they haven't even gone to have a sleepover at their grandparents or uncles or aunts or best friends places... And I would have thought by the age of five or six, that's uh, not helpful again to a child's development. They need to become part of a bigger world and that should happen in a gradual and supportive way. It's not like you should dump them down at the local um, orphanage for a week while you go off to (laughs) Bali, (laughs) but but it needs to happen. It's part of setting them up for a successful adult life, which should be the primary goal of parents, really. That's the long-term goal.
0: One of the things I found being a parent, my kids are five and seven now, um, people like to say what they weren't told about parenting before they had kids. And I was told most things. One of the things I wasn't expecting that in a way, it's a it's a long period of letting go. So each step of their mm. life, there's something mm. that they're doing that they don't need you for anymore. Yep. And um, you talk about it in a way in your um, chapter about effective parenting that parents actually need to be able to step away from their kids and understand that parenting changes as your child gets older. I know that that's hard for me to do personally because you're so used to them needing you and Mm, wanting mm. all of that help. But you say that's imperative that we do that as parents.
1: Yeah, if we do care about their success as adults, and we should, (laughs) um... There's a huge amount of emotional energy in parenting and that is that does make it harder as they start to move away. But really from their early years, you need to step back at appropriate times. So you shouldn't be playing with them 24-7. They should be having time on their own. And uh, if they're bored, fine. And if they come and complain that they're bored, fine. Just tell them, okay, well, it's bad luck. You're bored. <laughs> um, and And go back to what you were doing. So boredom is actually a time where creative energy can really start to come into play and it gives people the opportunity to start to devise their own thoughts, their own dreams, their own games, their own ideas. So boredom is not something to be feared or shunned. But there's, at adolescence particularly, that um, that sort of break between parent and child where the parent does have to recognise that they have now come to a parting of the ways And to use that phrase makes it sound like something sort of awful, but it shouldn't be a complete parting of the ways. That's a terrible outcome if that happens. What it should be is a gradual parting of the ways with lots of to and froing between the two different routes that the uh, parent and the child are on. So that although the child should take his or her own path at adolescence, then that doesn't mean that they cut off all ties with the parent unless there's been a pretty toxic family dynamic Leading up to that, so yeah, it's a. It does take restraint though, and it's. Um, I find it even as a bloke, I find it hard that our kids now they're not tactile anymore. Like they used to jump into my arms and they'd crawl all over me and 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 ba- I'd bounce them around or and they'd give me a hug and so on. And now, yeah, they don't do that at all. I'd be lucky if they shake my hand. <laughs> I actually find that a bit sad. Yeah, um, I'm, 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 but I just gulp and kind of try to. Uh, I don't know, go and pat the dog or something (laughs) instead, (laughs) because I have to accept it. It's absolutely essential for our long-term healthy relationship and the long-term development of those boys that they do start to get that independence, which must come with adolescence.
0: You say that fear is important for children. Yeah, yeah. Why is it important? What kind of fear are you talking about here? Because <laughs> there'll be many dads listening to this going, awesome, we're going to take them out and we're going to do something really frightening. Well,
1: yeah, but I mean, it's all, again, in proportion. So I wouldn't be showing R-rated movies about the zombie apocalypse to them when they're three years old, but uh, they might be ready for that by 10 or 12. Depends <laughs> it depends on the child. And um, But why is it important? It's because we live in a world in which fear will always manifest itself from time to time and it'll often come unexpectedly upon us and we have to be able to manage it when it comes. And if we don't have some experience of that in childhood, then we will fall apart as adults when we're in fearful situations. So the stories that have been told in every culture since the beginning of humanity, as far as we can tell, about ogres or goblins or serpents or whatever, were told for a reason because, at some perhaps unconscious level or conscious level, the elders of the society knew that these stories were needed to teach young children what to apprehend, what to be apprehensive about, and how to cope with and manage those apprehensions. So there's no there's no Superman among us. There's no Superwoman or Batman or Batgirl, but uh, we do have people who can manage those fearful things better than others, and I think the reasons for that can be found in their upbringing.
0: You've obviously seen a way of parenting that's not helping our children grow up well in the modern age, but most parents today seem pretty involved, um, at least my peers do, in trying to work out how to bring up their children well. So paradoxically, we can think too much about it, but in some ways, does that give you faith that parents today will find a way because we are encouraged oh, yeah. to be so involved. <laughs> and I'm not. I don't want to. F-
1: uh, I don't want to be a parent basher by any means <laughs> because there are heaps of people doing a great job, but there is a substantial number of people who are not doing things in a way that's helpful to their children, and who seem unaware of the damage that they're doing, and that damage will be lifelong if the damage is deep enough, if the wounds are deep enough then it can't be cured, it can be helped, it can be um, remedied to some extent, but people will be changed by it's things in ways that are irrevocable. And so I think the parent who is able to step back, keep a distance when appropriate, we sort of joke about helicopter parenting, but it is actually a really toxic way to bring up children, to be hovering at their side, 24-7, monitoring, regulating, controlling everything that they do and say, and the attitudes that they hold and the values that they hold. So you do have to step back. You do have to keep a perspective. You also have to have your own life. Send the children to the grandparents or the best friend's place for a couple of nights and go off for a weekend with your partner and, uh, and spend time together. Pursue your interests and your passions and your hobbies and do that with zeal. And if your children aren't interested, that's fine, no problem. They can pursue their own passions and interests and zeals. So it's a matter of uh, having a good, healthy, balanced life yourself, and that will make it far more likely that you'll be able to parent successfully. If that, That's a tricky word. I'd like to unpack that word, but I don't think we have time. To parent effectively might be a better way of saying it than parent successfully.
0: Well, I don't want you to keep going because I, I'd quite like to end on that idea about sending the kids off for a weekend and having a weekend <laughs> away with your partner. Is your partner listening to this funny sense? <laughs> yeah, we might be booking them in with the grandparents very shortly. John, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, Siobhan. That's John Marsden. He's an award-winning author and principal. His book is called The Art of Growing Up and you'll find links where you can buy it in the notes of this episode. In the next episode of Feed, Play, Love... We'll be back with Helpline and our resident mothercraft expert, Chris Minogue, answering all your parenting questions. There's many different ways of doing it, but if I would just stick to the basics, listening going in when it's an active cry, helping him to settle. The other thing that I think doesn't get across is that it takes between five minutes and 15 minutes to settle a baby. If you want to ask Chris your questions, you can email them to us directly. The email is helpline at theparentbrand.com.au. Be Play Love is written and hosted by me, Siobhan Hunt.